Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. What up, everyone? I'm Alex, CEO and founder of Mars Space, and this is a new episode of Life on Mars. And in this one, we'll be talking to Mike Cunningham, Managing Director of Transcend Partners, one international M&A boutique that helps companies do their M&A and also raise capital, among other services. We'll be talking about what to do when you are approached by a potential buyer for your company. That is, from the first approach, what kind of message to send, what kind of meetings you should you take, what is the protocol, should you go in person, should you do it remotely, when to approach an M&A boutique and whatnot. We'll be talking about a lot of things of all the sales cycle of a company, but unfortunately, we didn't have time to cover all of it. So we have to split this conversation in two. And right now you're going to be enjoying the first part of this conversation with Mike Conehan. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm great, Alex. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Mike Conehan, we're going to be talking today, tonight, whenever you listen to this podcast about what to do when you're approached by a buyer. Because this is something that, you know, founders and CEOs, they tend to idealize. They, I'm saying they because Marspace is not, you know, it's not, uh, we will not be selling. But a lot yeah. of people say like, yeah, I'm going to create a company. I'm just going to IPO. I'm going to sell it. Uh, nothing farther from the truth, right? That happens only in a minority of cases. And you're going to be talking about that. What's a little bit of your background expertise on this? Just to give some context to the audience. Sure. So I've been working in M&A for about 10 years, uh, 100% technology focused. Uh, so helping technology companies to either raise capital, sell their company, that falls under the M&A category when you're getting acquired by a bigger company typically, uh, or buy side M&A is when a, a company wants to acquire smaller companies or complementary companies to their business. Uh, there can also be mergers. Merger is a term that gets thrown a, around a lot. And it's, you know, for the context of this discussion, I think we can just define it as you know, an acquisition one way or the other of similar sized companies. So there's actually, we've done acquisitions that were technically mergers, but that's in a legal sense. So we don't need to get into that for this discussion. It's, uh, you know, any, any when, it, when the companies are approximately the same size, it's a merger or when one's bigger than the other, the, you know, there's an acquisition typically. And so I've been doing that for the last 10 years, all technology sector, um, quite a bit in software, uh, internet space. Um, those are kind of the two two big spaces that we've worked in. I would say a little a bit more in software than internet. And that's that's pretty much it. My background prior to uh, M&A was working in investing. I worked at, I started at Citigroup in San Francisco. So I was on a team. We did equity research on technology companies. Um, and we would write recommendations, trade recommendations to institutional clients um, such as pension funds, mutual funds, and then we would also make investments ourselves. So if we wrote a recommendation for, you know, buy this company, you know, we think it's a good buy at this price level currently, then we would also buy that company ourselves, kind of, you know, not telling somebody else to do something that we wouldn't do ourselves. We, we invested $2 million in each of those. And over my period on this desk of three people, me and two other people, we invested in over 50 companies, so over 100 million. 
So that was kind of my introduction into the investing world and technology uh, kind of analysis of technology companies. After that, I worked at a hedge fund in New York City, and I worked uh, at Merrill Lynch in London doing similar activities as well. That's, let's talk about the expectations, right? Because I think that's the hardest truth to swallow. It's a lot of people think they're going to IPO. They're going to sell by like billions. They're going to become unicorns, right? Yeah. The reason why we're recording this podcast is, I mean, we've known each other for quite some years already, but you shared with me the other day one really interesting TechCrunch article from 2018 about uh, about selling the company, right? And the delusional effect of thinking that you're going to sell your company and reality hitting you hard in the face, right? And one of the interesting things that it mentions is that, you know, most of the exits happens before Series B, which is far from what we see in television or because we're affected by survivorship bias, right? Yeah. Like that we're only seeing like, oh my God, Pinterest, oh no, sorry, Instagram sold to Facebook. Um, WhatsApp sold to Facebook for this fortune. But we don't get to see the failed sales like the non-interesting sales, the undisclosed amounts, and yeah. things like that. So, all right, let's let's talk about that. What's the? Uh, can you share some of the you know facts and figures that you've seen throughout all, all your accumulated experience in the sector? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think you know we can talk about specific facts in general, but also kind of general generalities. In part of you know the article, so <laughs> I should have reread the article, but so I sent that article to you. Maybe I don't know couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and I read it before I sent it to you. I haven't read it since, but I remember the point that you made, which is actually a favorable point for technology founders, which is a lot of them don't need to get a series B or C. Some of them don't qualify for it. You know, they tried to raise it and they, they were unable to. So they just kept, you know, they, but their business was, was able to keep going. So they kept going, you know, hopefully growing the business or keep, you know, running the business and then they sell their company. Um, but in those cases, suppose they didn't need it. Suppose they got to profitability, which is a, you know, a great goal for a startup to have. They get to profitability after their Series A. You know, they have a much bigger pool of cash for themselves. They're much less diluted in those cases. So you know, a lot of it speaks to that reality as well. It's just it's not necessary to get to Series C or D. You know, some business models are just money, cash-burning business models. A lot of the you know, high customer acquisition business models in the web, uh, like B2C have to acquire millions of people, but a lot of businesses don't require that. So it's, you know, you can raise a seed, you know, put together a nice product, grow it yourself, get to profitability and sell your company. And a lot of these companies are not even heard of. So we've worked with several companies that didn't do a press release, um, didn't really announce the sale, you know, very good sales, you know, not enormous, but, you know, more than 10 million euros, for example, in many cases, and they, you know, they don't feel a need to, to do a big uh, publicity. So it's, you know, I think that's, that's a, you know, there's a lot of things, I guess the point, the reason I'm mentioning that is there's so much that goes on that's un, unheard of. So there's not only survivorship bias, which you mentioned, but there's also just, um, I guess, kind of self self-publicizing uh, bias because only, you know, a certain percentage of the companies mentioned publicly, you know, apart from their family and friends that they were able to sell their company. So it's, you know, and there's just so between those two biases, there's just a ton of missing information. Yeah. And one of the things we'll be uh, touching on is the fact that a lot of the company sales here either failed 
So they come to they don't come to fruition, or they are just like underperforming, and it'll be like you know this is like you don't really make money, or you get to share, so they don't go very well. In fact, our most performing podcast episode on the Spanish feed of Life on Mars is about one company sale that didn't really go well. Uh, with the the episode with uh, Laura Gascon, I really recommend you guys uh, hear it because yeah. it's uh, it's really good. It's just like you know, so she sold her company, it didn't go well. Right, we didn't talk about numbers, couldn't be this close, but like it didn't go well. There were a lot of problems, and therefore, yeah. no one ever heard about that sell sale. Right? Um, before we get into the into the main topic, which is when you get approached by a buyer, you start a lot of companies start thinking about selling before they even create a company, right? And I'm speaking yeah. now from the point of view as an investor, right? I see a lot of decks where they talk about the exit. Like for me, that's a huge red flag. Might not be for other investors, and I want to hear your opinion on this, right? But most of them, are like, unless they come from, you know, the founders come from a big corporation, they have 10 years trajectory in that corporation, they know the pain points, they know the right people, they have developed, they have tested that inside or within the corporation, then they spin off something that they can eventually sell back to the mother company, which in which case it might make sense to include that as a, you know, exit strategy. The rest is just pure bullshit. What's yeah. your take on this? So this is one where I think there's no right answer to the question. My view is more in line with yours. So there's two points of view. One is, you know, anybody who's thinking about this stuff in the beginning is thinking way too early. You should be focusing on making a great product and getting the product market fit. That should be your sole focus until you get there. Uh, so that's one point of view. The other point of view is it's never too early to start talking, you know, start you know, you shouldn't spend a ton of time on this, but to start having conversations and developing some relationships with potential buyers, because this is your ultimate future. So there's kind of, you know, those two sides to the story. And and I fit, my view is in the middle, I would say more towards your point of view, which is, you know, I think until the company's going very well, you should be focused on the product, focused on sales, focused on growing the business, focus on, frankly, creating a great business, the best business that you can create. But once you're kind of thinking, you know, once you have that board meeting or that internal founder meeting where you have the conversation, either you get approached or, you know, companies get approached all the time. So maybe early on, they just kind of ignore it. But I guess it's kind of more when you have that conversation with your founders or, or board members and it comes up, hey, guys, now is probably not the right time to sell, but maybe in, I don't know, two years, something like that would be, you know, could make sense given our current growth trajectory, our current goals and plans for the business, et cetera. And I think at that point, it would probably, it would definitely start making sense to start thinking about it, thinking about strategy and start preparing yourself for, you know, that, that eventual goal. So that's kind of my, my view on the topic. Let's start the process then, you know, you're a startup and at a certain point there comes a potential buyer and they reached out, like in which case it could be like, sometimes it's on LinkedIn, sometimes it's, you know, uh, an email, sometimes it's like a phone call, sometimes a warm introduction by somebody you know. Um, but in a lot of the cases, the majority of the cases, if you're new to the game, you will have no prior experience to that. You don't even know how to react. Who is the best person to reach out for a counsel and advice in these kind of situations? Before you even decide to go for like a M&A boutique or something, but like... Yeah. So what I would do, so, so if I'm a founder and that happens to me and I really, you know, I guess I have to kind of pretend. So let's pretend I, you know, I'm trying to imagine I know very little or nothing about this. 
what what I would do is I, I would probably have the first conversation with this party, but knowing going in, you know, 30 minute phone conversation, nothing too in-depth, casual, informal conversation, friendly. That's how I would think about it and learn, learn what they want, you know, because many times it gets introduced as, oh, you know, it can be introduced in many different ways. Usually they're not saying we want to buy your company for 50 million. It's something like, you know, we, you know, there could be a strategic fit or collaboration between our companies, what have you can be, you know, introduced in uh, infinite number of ways. So I would have that conversation, obviously not revealing anything confidential, just to understand where this other party's coming from. What do they want to do? You know, are they interested in buying my company? Are they interested in doing something else? I'd, I would have that conversation. And then the next thing is, you know, I would, the, what you want to start doing really quickly is you want to get an NDA in place. And if the other party's a pretty professional party, they'll understand that. And they, I would say they would even possibly bring that up on the phone conversation. So towards the end of a lot of these calls, it's kind of next steps come up. And so, you know, an obvious next step is both parties need to think about it. Could this make sense? Talk internally. And, you know, I would even bring up, you know, either at that point or shortly after via email, like we, you know, you know, once you decide it's worth continuing the conversation, you want to have an NDA in place before you continue that conversation. And that's to protect your company for tons of reasons. It's not just confidential information. A good NDA will typically have a non-solicit, for example. So that means, you know, if they really like your company, part of the reason, part of the benefit they get from your company, maybe they could get by coaching five of your best employees, you know, maybe your best programmer and a few other people. So getting this NDA in place that says non-solicit, you cannot hire any employee from my company from at least two years or you know, whatever, like then that, that protects you quite a bit as well, because the more they learn about your company, the more they want to, they may want to poach these people. So it's, it's not only for confidential information, it's also for just kind of setting the ground rules about, you know, if we're going to talk, we need to have certain things in place. So I would say that's, that's a key aspect. Another conversation could be, you know, with some of your investors, if you have good professional investors, you know, VCs, for example, or it doesn't need to be a VC, but somebody who's, um, had some experience in M&A, have a conversation with them. That's a, you know, an easy, free conversation, you know, reaching out to an M&A advisor, it would be free as well. But, you know, that's an easy conversation to have. You already know the person, you know, you know how experienced they are in this area. You can usually line up that call pretty quickly. So that's, you know, that's an obvious one that I would do as well. And, and maybe, you know, other people in your network that are experienced in this as well. So those are kind of the three things, you know, that I would do. Definitely, you know, I would probably have the initial conversation. I wouldn't be demanding an NDA before we've even talked for, you know, a 15-minute informal conversation. But after that, if I decide I want to continue, then I would definitely get the NDA in place. Or even, you know, maybe not I'm 100% sure I want you to buy my company, but, you know, I at least want to learn more. You need to get the NDA in place. Um, and not a lot of people will know this, but some three years ago, we were approached by a potential buyer. And of course, we didn't want to sell. But but the thing is, like, we don't have investors, we don't have board, and we, don't have, we didn't have prior experience in, in other companies, right? So therefore, we didn't have a trusted contact, like, within reach. I mean, we did have, like, some friends or whatever, right? But um, uh, as you said, like, reach out to investors or people who know the company very well. Like, that was not in our possibilities. Yeah. And um, and the most important things, we didn't know the protocol, 
right? So is it okay to say, to take that call if you're not interested in selling? How do you know? What are you allowed to say? Uh, I, we didn't even sign an NDA for that. So that's something that we, you know, potentially in hindsight, we might have fucked up. Nothing ever happened, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, like, I remember we, one of the things we, I think we did well, I reached out to one very good friend of mine who's, who sold several companies, right? Sold several mm -hmm. companies. And I thought that he could be like a, a great advisor in the process. We took him for lunch. I mean, it happened. It all happened very quickly, and um, the potential uh, acquirer was one of our clients, actually. So we were a little bit like hesitant about the whole situation. It was like, what happens if we say no? Maybe we'll lose, lose them the as a client. client. <laughs> yeah. So we wanted to make it as safe as possible. Just make it make make sure that was gonna that was gonna work, right? So we took him for dinner, uh, sorry, for lunch before the before the the meeting, and he gave us a master class what to say, how to behave. Don't say this, don't talk about a price, let them talk more, ask some questions and just kind of like, you know, play it, play it cool. And, but we, it was so rushed up that we didn't have time to discuss it within the three founders, right? Um, so <laughs> yeah. this first, let's say that, you know, you take the first call and then I'm going to go into more detail about how it happened, right? Let's say let you take the first call and you decide that it's good protocol to take of meeting, like a face-to-face -face meeting, right? Mm -hmm. When does that typically happen? How should you behave in that meeting? So the first meeting, I, this is, I would say, you would definitely want the NDA in place. So the first conversation, okay. you know, you would maybe is a quick phone call, something like that. Usually the buyer's going to be in a different geography. So it's natural to have a, a conversation either on the phone or like a Zoom or whatever, Google Meet for the first conversation, you know, sometimes it's taking, taking the meeting like a signal, you're sending a signal that you're interested or you're just being cordial. Um, I think you're sending, you know, and that, that really depends on your language in the emails. Hey. But so I would, you know, the, that's another point, a good point to bring up is, you know, in the emails and in the conversations, you know, I, I would be clear. And, and I, I do this with my clients as well. You know, my client's not interested not interested in this, but, you know, I'm here, you know, as his advisor to, you know, take, you know, learn about inbound inquiries and kind of understand what your motivations are and these types of okay. things. So that's, you know, that's part of my job with a lot of, a lot of clients. And so I would make it clear, look, you know, we're not interested in any, any sale or anything like that, but, you know, we're, we're always interested to know when somebody approaches us interested in our company, kind of, you know, if there's some collaboration or something like that, that we can, we can do together. Okay. Um, Cause what we did here is like after, you know, we went for lunch for the, with, with this friend and then we said, okay, we'll meet the, meet the, meet the client, the potential buyer. And we had a meeting in which we knew the basic rules of, you know, don't talk too much because basically we're, we're unexperienced and we could just like, you know, whatever you say, yeah, yeah. you might fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. That. So one, you don't want to say anything confidential. Two, this is an right. optimal learning opportunity. And the more they're talking, the more you're learning. The more you're talking, right. the more they're learning. So you want to be on the listening side because that's that puts you on the learning side, which is the you know the learner is the winner, you know more or less. Obviously, right. you want to be friendly and you don't want to be too coy and not saying anything because that's just unfriendly, you know. So you need to kind of have a little bit of balance there, but. Yeah, ideally, you're learning the most information possible in that meeting. And it 
you know, it appears to me that in this kind of meetings, whatever you say, it just drives the company price up and down by the minute, right? Based on your answer, right? And I remember we took that meeting. Um, it was clear for us that it was not a right fit because of terms of culture, basically. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we said, okay, we'll just discuss about it. We had a very you know, informal, if you will, first meeting, which we exchange impressions. We ask some questions as to what will happen in this scenario, what will happen with our culture, what will happen with our team, with our clients, things that show that you're worried about, about what might happen with the future of the company, right? And, but we didn't commit to anything. We didn't, we didn't even talk about like price. We didn't ask, they didn't say. Yeah. But I remember there was a funny moment uh, in which we, you know, we went out of the meeting and uh, we walked for like, you know, a safe number of meters with my two yeah. co-founders. And we're like, <laughs> I remember asking them, we're not going to sell. But if we sold, what would we be doing in five years time? Because more often than not, you've got this clause in which you have to like a permanence clause, right? And mm -hmm. they both answered something like along the lines of the same company. And then I said, yeah. why the should we be selling then? If we, you yeah, know, it's taken a lot to kind of like, uh, you know, bring this up and like maintain the company. And in that sense, you know, follow up to that meeting. What yeah. should be like correct wording, correct follow up email, some formalities that yeah, we should be doing there. Yeah. So, I mean, the safest thing you can do, I think, you know, if you decide you want to, you know, keep this conversation going, the safest thing is to hire, you know, a professional to kind of help you with this conversation. But if you're doing it yourself, if you want to do it ad hoc, so in, in the hypothetical situation is you you are interested in continuing the conversation, is that right? Yeah, I mean, we so, in that in, in that case for us, you know, it was we wanted to continue the conversation, but like not that conversation, the conversation yeah. of them being clients, you know. So ah, there was a conflict okay. of interest, right? For us, yeah, there was a conflict of interest. Yeah, it's always sensitive, you know. If it's a you know, if you're yeah. at the table with either a, a current client or a competitor you know, for obvious yeah. reasons. So in your You're case, right. the client is the one who approached you. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's a very sensitive situation. You know, I would certainly reaffirm that, you know, you think you guys work great together. You love having them as a client, you know, all right. the obvious things like that, you know, should, you know, I, I would say, even though they're obvious, it's just, you know, reinforces positive good will and good feelings, you know, try to keep the feelings positive about that. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, depending on the structure of the company, yeah, you can say, you know, yeah, we're just, you know, in the friendliest way possible, you know, we're, we're really not interested in selling right now, you know, say, you know, you know, you've spoken internally and as much as you guys get along with the, with the client, it's just not a good fit. There's not really a great, you know, way, I think to say that, but just, you know, try to keep the client relationship going and, and, yeah. and do it that way. How, how did you guys do it, by the way? Because it's, it's I mean, obviously something you had to do. Yeah, um, I think that we took a second meeting, if I remember correctly, because we somehow thought about we've taken a meeting. Yeah. It doesn't feel polite to send an email. It feels too cold, right? Let's yeah, take yeah. another meeting and we'll explain it there and we'll give our reasons. And, you know, we thought about it and we think it doesn't yeah. really make sense. Uh, we're happy to continue with this collaboration. So, so, forth. so that, that was going to be my next question. So if you take a meeting, you should explain the yes or no in a meeting or an okay, an email is always good or a call. Is there any some sort of formality around how you convey this? Well, things? in your situation, for sure, I think you did it the right way. This is a client. So this is a super sensitive situation. So yeah, yeah. I would you know, have that meeting and maybe, you know, maybe even bring some sweeteners to the meeting, such as, you know, 
So pastries. <laughs> yeah, pastries, literally, but also kind of sweeteners in the sense of, of hey, you know, we love working together. Maybe, you yeah. know, new things you can offer them. By the way, yeah. you know, this is not the company sale. It's not something, you know, we've decided we want to do. If, if we were interested in selling at all, you were certainly somebody that we would, we would want to talk to. But we're just, we're just not interested. We had a second talk about this. But, you know, we love having you as a client. By the way, you know, with our client relationship, we think that, you know, there's these new things we can offer you and, you know, not trying to upsell, but just trying to add, you know, tell, show them that you love them as a client and, and give them some love in that regard. So that's kind of what I'm thinking, you know, and things you can offer them that maybe don't cost you anything. You're not going to charge them money for ways that you can show them love in the current relationship that you have. Well, I think we did it the right way because we managed to keep them as a client for yeah. two, two, <laughs> two, three extra years. So that, that was good. But like, Excellent. I don't know, when would be the right time? Like, because in our case, you know, we didn't want to continue this conversation, but a lot of people might want to continue this conversation, right? Especially now that we're facing this market recession, consolidated times. So we're seeing a lot of M&A happening. Yeah. So when is the right time to contact an M&A boutique? So if you're willing, so it totally depends on your, your motivation. So if you're interested in selling or you want to, if you want to do a transaction, then it certainly makes sense to talk to the relevant professionals. And, you know, an M&A boutique would be on the early end of the spectrum. An M&A lawyer would need to be involved at some point too, but that's okay. something later on because they're more involved in the drafting of the documents and the, you know, the final contract for the, the company sale. And that's towards the end of the process. So you kind of have a good, even if you're starting the conversations now, you typically have at least, depends how fast the process, you want the process to go and how fast the process is going, but you've got at least three or four months, if not quite a bit longer before you need to start having those M&A lawyer conversations. And, you know, as far as hiring a, you know, an M&A boutique, that's totally depends on your objectives and And also there's founders, as you mentioned, Alex, that, you know, have done multiple company sales themselves. You know, maybe they feel no need to, to hire an M&A advisor. I think, I, think, I, I think that's not, you know, usually they'll still get tremendous value from it. Um, I, know, I know a guy, oh, I know more than one person, but I, I believe one of the senior people at a Barcelona tech firm that sold in the last two years, he was, he was an M&A advisor. He worked, I think, at Morgan Stanley or one of the big, I think maybe Deutsche Bank in London for multiple years doing M&A at the highest level. And he still hired a boutique. He didn't hire me. I was disappointed, but he hired a boutique, <laughs> he hired a boutique to help him, you know, one of my direct competitors. And, uh, and he had a good outcome. And this is a guy who knows a tremendous amount of M&A. And, you know, he certainly doesn't need anyone to tell him how it goes. Um, but it's a, it's a ton of work. And, and it also depends how you want to do it. If you want to do kind of an optimizing process. So there's, you know, you can receive inbound inquiries and, you know, I, you never want to just have one offer in hand. That's just a very suboptimal situation, which I can explain at some point. But so if you want to, if you want to create an optimal situation, you need to speak to as many of the relevant parties as possible And then you kind of create a bidding situation. So you create a situation where you try to time the offers. You have conversations with, you know, 20 to, you know, maybe you start conversations with 100, but most of them are not interested. So you end up having conversations with 10 or 15 or 20 different companies at the same time. Maybe you get offers from 
five of them and you try to time the offers at the same time. So you have your inbound offer here and then you're speaking to some other people. And more often than not, one of the new people will outbid the, the original offer. But even if that doesn't happen, it's still very advantageous to do it because it just, it creates, it, it creates kind of a FOMA effect, you know, the fear of missing out. It, it yep. makes your company look much more attractive when many other people are, are gunning for it, potential buyers. So, so in any case, it, it depends on, you know, what kind of situation you want to have. I've heard of, you know, and I'm sure you've heard of many situations of founders who sold their company and did it by themselves and it worked out fine. You know, and it's sometimes I look at those and I kind of, um, you know, I kind of feel that it's possibly a little bit sad for them because also sometimes I know the buyer and I know that this buyer did not make a really high offer. And I look at their mm. business and I think this guy, you know, has an awesome business and this private equity, usually the private equities are not going to be great bidders. So, but this private equity, you know, I know what they bid the last five or 10 times I was talking with them, it was never a great offer. These guys don't make very high offers. You know, they're All looking right. for, they're looking for great deals. You know, private equities are, are investors. They want to buy low and sell high. So they want to buy your company for a low amount, ideally with no other competition. So no other buyers at the table, they can get a great deal and then they sell it, you know, four or five years later for much more money and make an outstanding return. So, so many times when I hear about these situations, you know, and it's not because they didn't choose me because there's, there's way too many technology companies in Barcelona and Spain in general that, you know, I can't work with all of them, even if they wanted to work with me, there's just way too many. So it's, it's not about that. It's just, I love seeing when companies get a great strategic fit and they get a great price for their company. And, and I've seen, you know, having worked in the industry for many years, you know, certain buyers, you just know, are not, you know, don't make great offers. Some of them are notorious for making horrible offers, yeah. <laughs> but then there's a lot in kind of in the middle, kind of in the low. And a lot of these are, most of them, I'd say are, are private equities that don't make great offers. You know, it's not necessarily a horrible offer, but it's, it's kind of just barely acceptable. And it's, you know, it's, and it's a shame because this is a famous Barcelona tech company. It's like, I would have loved to see these guys, you know, maybe they don't disclose, they probably don't, usually they don't disclose the amount, but I know, you know, that maybe they could have gotten double or more from a, a good strategic fit. So it's, it's a little bit sad. Yeah. And disclose amount is usually code for not enough money, right? So <laughs> yeah. um, one, one with a nugget in what you said is that um, if you're being approached by an M, uh, sorry, by a private equity you should definitely get an M&A boutique because you need other bidders. Otherwise, you know, you know, they're going to, you're going to get a very low offer. So if I yeah. ever am approached by a private equity, I'll be like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to call Mike. So I think up to that, like, yeah. what is the best way? What, what can we, cause I'm, you know, um, services companies, we don't have the best reputation out there, especially yeah. you know, <laughs> lawyers, consultants, yeah. you know, what have you. Right. Um, I always like to advise people, even if people we're not going to work with, on how to choose a good development company, a good development agency, right? Because most of it, like, come on, companies like our smart space will leave off the bad reputation of the rest of the world. Yeah. Right? Pretty sure you guys are the same. So how to tell what's a good m and boutique and what's a bad m and boutique? Well, like the three things that we should be very wary of. Yeah. So I think, you know, good m and boutique versus bad. So... 
I want to just take a half step back because there was, you said something and there was something else that I wanted to mention related to the, the talk Go a ahead. second ago. So about that, you know, I think, I think every time you're approached by one buyer, you want more parties at the table. So whether yeah. you hire an M&A advisor or whether you do it yourself, you know, you need to, you need to know, but you, you're, it's much better for you if you think about who are the most who could get the most value from my company and start reaching out to those companies in order to get other people at the table. So kind of as soon as you get this interest, if it's something real, you know, a good interested party that's, you know, that you like, that you're, that you're considering, um, hold on. Sorry. So anyways, <laughs> excuse me. So yeah, I think it's echo in the room. So oh, yeah. But so I'll speak a little bit softer. Um, yeah. So if you're, you know, in any case, you want to have multiple parties at the table. Um, and, and it tries to rise up, right? Yeah, it rises the price up. It's also backup options. It's also the buyer who you're originally speaking with. They know that you're speaking with other people. So when, you, when you're speaking with one buyer, they have all the leverage. You know, they kind of, especially when you're interested, when you're continuing in the process, you keep talking to them. They know I'm the buyer. And they can drag you along in this process. And I've seen it many times where towards the end of the process, you know, they may lower the price quite a bit. So they've dragged you along for six months or so, and then they lower the price. And, and it's kind of, you're in a bad situation. You know, you wasted a ton of time, um, a lot of energy, you know, maybe hired people to help you, lawyers or whatnot. And then they lower the price, you know, for they make up some BS reason typically. So that's, that's a horrible situation. If you have other parties at the table, you know, it's, first of all, it's way less likely that that's going to happen because they know if they pull, try to pull something like that, you're going to go to the next party. Uh, right. Secondly, you know, if they actually do that, you can go to the next party. Um, third, you know, there's a good chance, whether it's a strategic or a private equity, if you bring more parties to the table, there's a very good chance that the other parties, I mean, what's the probability that the first party who comes to you gives you the highest offer? When yeah, I, I don't know. later you bring five more parties, you know, you get five more other parties interested. The probability is just, you know, is that one of the new parties, and this is usually what happens, comes with a higher offer than your original offer, the original party that approached you. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's, there's so many reasons why getting other people at the table is just so much more beneficial for the founder. Um, you know, whether it's a strategic or a private equity, you know, I agree with you. Typically, strategics make the higher offers compared to private equity. Some private equities do make good offers as well, uh, but others have reputations. And this would be probably extremely difficult or impossible for a founder to know kind of which ones are more the bottom feeders who give low offers, you know, super low offers, just trying to, you know, buy super cheap and sell it later at a much higher price. So that's and kind of how I would, you know, I just wanted to mention that. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Then, um And that's a really that's a really good position because one of the things um, that we bring into the table as service providers is our accumulated experience, having seen different projects, you know, thinking outside of the box, so on and so forth. But let's go back then, or circle back to the the good and bad signs of how to choose one yep. from the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think a lot of it is kind of your comfort. So first of all, you want to meet the people. You you know you want them to you want to feel in the meeting that they understand your sector. You certainly want to ask about their track record. So you want to ask about things they've done in the past. I think this is kind of an obvious thing. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, you know, you want to really feel like they understand your business really well. They understand your sector very well. Ideally, you know, at least one or multiple of the, 
the work experiences that they have have been in your area. Um, so that's, you know, those are a few things I think, um, you know, you, you want to have the relationship ideally and a little bit in advance of the, so even if, you know, you're not sure, you know, you want to hire an M&A advisor at all, it's much better to kind of develop a relationship a little bit before you need the person. Because if you get an offer, an inbound offer comes to you, then you have to start scrambling. All right. You know, start asking your friends who are the, you know, decent M&A advisors in Barcelona and then you start calling all of them. You want to have meetings with all of them. You certainly, you know, you want to, you know, feel that you're making a good choice. So all of this stuff wastes a lot of time. So, you, you know, it's much more ideal to do this, excuse me, this type of stuff in advance. And, and then you, you know, if and when you decide you want to hire somebody, at least you kind of know um, this company is the one that I want to hire. This specific person is an advisor I feel comfortable and confident with. So I would say doing it in advance you know, obviously looking at their track record, having, you know, in the meetings feel, you know, a comfort level with the person in the company, but also feeling that they understand well your, uh, your sector and your business. I think these are kind of the, the aspects that I would look at the most. Also lo- being local is, is huge. Because, right. You know, everything now. Local you know, to you, not to the buyer. Yeah, to you. Exactly. Because at some point, buyers, you know, are going to be visiting you and you're going to be having important meetings at your office. And yes, if you hire a boutique in London, they can fly in for some of those meetings, but it's going to be, but, more expensive. It, but it's going to be more expensive. And if somebody's local, you can have them at every single meeting, whether it's a, you know, the most important meeting of the month or just kind of your regular weekly meeting to talk with them, to prepare documents, tons of documents get prepared in these processes. You know, so yeah. for example, you know, there's kind of the staple documents, the memorandum, the financial model, the teaser. So, you know, those, those always get prepared, but in the conversations with the buyer, they may ask you, all right, I want, I want to see, you know, retention metrics, all of your clients for the last five years, you know, the trend in retention and, you know, what was the churn each year, the trend of the churn, um, you know, how many were upsold, how many you know, maybe you kept as clients, but their spend went down. So you have to do tons of documents. This is just one example that's fairly common. Um, but the M&A advisor is typically the one who prepares that and makes it look really professional, usually in conjunction with your company. So anyways, there's, there's tons of this stuff that get prepared and, and being in person makes a much better work dynamic than, than everything long distance. You don't have to be meeting every day, but being able to sit down and, and go through things together is a, is a big advantage, I would say. And these are like the good things you should look out for. I look in um, in this process, right? But sometimes it's not so much about choosing a good one; it's about weeding out the bad ones, right? What would be yeah. the red flags? What would things that if I see in an M and A boutique, like I should not go for them? Yeah, so I mean, minimal minimal track record. You know, minimal, minimal or no track record is kind of the big, most obvious red flag. Um, yeah, and. Yeah, I mean, that's, I would say that's, that's the biggest thing, not understanding, it's kind of the opposite of what I was saying before. So, you know, you sit down with them, you have a meeting, you're explaining your business, and you yeah. just don't feel that they're getting it, you know, and it's, okay. and if you have a complicated business, maybe it's going to take a couple meetings for them to get it. But at a certain point, they need to understand extremely well your business and your sector. And, you know, if you think you've given a reasonable amount of time for them to understand it, and they're just not getting it, you know, that's, that's a killer as well. So I would say that's that's something. Also, 
you know, if you hire somebody from, you know, another city, I would be super confident that they bring, you know, something else to the table. You know, they're, they're just the best, you know, have an incredible reputation, you know, something like that, because otherwise this long distance is just, is not beneficial for your company. Again, they're only going to come in for the most important meetings of the whole process. Maybe they come in, they fly in three or four times in your one year work relationship, something like that. Um, I've heard of times when they flew in zero times, you know, so it's kind of, yeah. and actually never met the founder once in person, everything. And it's, you know, I, I guess you know, hard to say how that went, but it's not, yeah. I, it's certainly not ideal. So. Ideal. What's the one word that we get to hear a lot in this space? And I'm not sure. I'm just asking genuinely, I don't know. What's the difference between a broker and an M&A boutique? So again, I'm, I'm in the M&A boutique category. So we do a process kind of from A to Z. And, and I think, you know, most of our competitors do as well. So we're, we do everything. So it's kind of, and, and if, if so we can't do something. is just what, one part of it then? I think the broker part, and I, you know, I actually don't know any brokers personally, and I've never competed on a deal that I know of. Maybe I've competed right. and didn't tell me with a broker. Uh, yeah. But I, my understanding of a broker is that it's more just kind of like they'll, you know, maybe advertise your companies for sale or maybe just kind of do a mass outreach to some people they know about your company being for sale. And yeah. I don't know for a fact, I would imagine that a broker charges lower fees than an M&A boutique. Hmm. Um, although I, you know, again, the, bro the broker side, I've heard that, you know, term being thrown around a couple of times, but it's, yeah. yeah, I think that's a more kind of um, minimal, super minimal process. Maybe they just kind of reach out to, you know, 50 or a hundred people and, and, you know, trying to, bring buyers to the table for your company, bring acquirers to the table, something like that. But I, I, I need to qualify everything that mm -hmm. I've said about brokers with, I just, I'm not a hundred percent sure because I don't, you know, I usually almost never compete with them and they're kind of a little bit different, quite a bit different than what I do. No worries. I heard it a couple of times and I was pretty curious about what would be the difference. Maybe they were kind of like the, the pirate guys trying to do it. Maybe just like individuals <laughs> doing one part of the process. I have no idea. So yeah. let's move to the process because one of the things that, you know, might be really frustrating for founders is that, uh, you know, it's not a short process because you yeah. get your first bid. Then you start working on it. You take meetings, you search for the M&A boutique, you prepare, you know, maybe this, goes along really well and you want to take it farther, but then you start getting the inbound uh, petitions from other or offers from other companies. And then you start negotiating. One gets out of the negotiation table. Then another yep. one comes last minute. This might stretch out for how many months usually? Are we talking so about this can be months or even years? <laughs> yeah. So again, this is probably a good reason to professionalize the process as well. Correct. So I think professionalizing the process, you know, by bringing a lot more buyers to the table, you know, I'm, I'm speaking about sell side M&A now, which is the most common for startups, the most common for your audience. The other side of M&A is acquiring companies. Most, you know, tech companies and startups are not looking to buy other companies. We certainly have had situations of that and we've helped companies yeah. with that, but that's, that's not nearly as common as companies looking to be acquired. So for this part of the conversation, I'm going to focus on this, what's called sell side M&A, which is companies that are looking to sell their company or be acquired. So especially before series B, you wouldn't be acquiring another company, right? It's like not I very mean, likely because you don't have the capital for it. 
Yeah, well, you can. I mean, you can do a share swap, for example, which is common. Yeah. So I'm, you know, my company is much more valuable, and you know, for yeah. So it's. I mean, that's that's somewhat common. Um, and but you don't also, have the capital usually because you're still <laughs> before Series A, yeah. you're not even profitable. So why incurring into more depth by to acquire another company? You don't have the processes. You don't have, you know, you might not have even the structure. And chances are you're buying like a really smaller company, which is to, you know, not a huge advantage for you. I don't know. That's my generally that's my speaking. Take. Generally speaking, I agree with what you're saying. The one caveat that I would put in is that, you know, for example, a company we sold uh, in 2019 only had seed investors, but that was, I don't know. I think that was, if I remember correctly, maybe 2013 or 14. So they got that's to profitability profit. and okay, they got yeah, very that's... profitable. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of, yeah. So the, you know, if a company raised their Series A within the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, they're probably not profitable. I agree with that. But there's many companies that raised a Series A and got the profitability, grow, 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 right. more, more money coming in, and then they start buying companies down the line. So that's kind mm -hmm. of the difference that I would only add in that situation. But yeah, how long can the process last? You know, it depends how smoothly it goes. It depends if you professionalize it. But normally when you professionalize it, if you try to, um, you know, group so that the offers come in all at the same time, you know, kind of optimizing the process for what we call a competitive process. So you want to maximize the value of your company, you know, accept the highest offer or the best terms, which is, you know, quite usually the, the highest offer uh, with regard to price, although offers can have a lot of shapes and forms. So that's, mm -hmm. it, it may not be, um, but anyways, you know, I, I would say, If things go pretty smoothly, maybe eight months is is pretty common. Eight to ten months, I would say. Which is which brings you to the next question. It's uh, one of the reasons why you might want to outsource this is because you don't have usually mental bandwidth to run a company <laughs> and then sell it at the same time. Because yeah. you're conveying two different messages, right? To your employees, you you normally you wouldn't tell it, right? Because like that's something you need to keep. From the public, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they tell it at like the very end of the process, kind of correct. You know, a few weeks yeah. before, you know, it's kind of in 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 many of those situations too. It's like all the company, all the employees, kind of figured it out and they were okay with it. You know, that's maybe not ideal, but sometimes it happens and and you have to roll with it. But yeah, uh, yeah, usually it's kept confidential. And more important than that is. Yeah, that you're exactly right. The CEO and usually there's more people that need to be involved. The CFO is is a very, it's much more ideal that that person can be involved as well for the financials. Um, yeah, so it's it's a tremendous amount of time for those people. So you should, you know, if you're a CEO planning on spending, you know, and if you're going to do a loan, it's not going to be eight or 10 months. It's more likely it'll be quite a bit longer. It could be 12 to 24 months, you know, something like that is probably more realistic if you want to do it yourself. So, um, and any process can be elongated as well, kind of, you know, basically if the first, you know, first bidder that you accepted ended up not working out for some reason, then you have to kind of take a step back and do a new bidding process. So even well-run processes can go much longer than eight to 10 months and, and poorly run processes often never finish. So it's in the company, you know, it doesn't work out at all. So that's you know, and those can go on forever. So, <laughs> oh no, yeah. I mean, I mean, one of one of one of the things here to to kind of like uh, to touch on is that if you're running an M A process, you're probably just leaving other things unattended, right? Like sales, exactly. 
team management, whatever. So the company is going to suffer. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of companies, like especially if the M&A process doesn't really go uh, well, doesn't end up successfully, the company has suffered from it. So, you yeah. know, some metrics will go down, team satisfaction will go down. There will be like more burnout, more stress, just because you're for a year or yeah. potentially two years focused on something <laughs> that might not happen. Yeah. How how to calibrate this balance? How do you keep yeah. the expectations aligned here with the with the founders and everybody, every stakeholder, basically? Yeah. So obviously, we we carry as much load as we can, and we take a lot of the weight off them. But even in the case where an advisor is involved, the CEOs, or you know, it depends how many people the CEO chooses to have involved, but the founding team or the senior leadership, there's going to be a good amount of involvement in any case, you know, because they need to help. If somebody requests from me all this, you know, this custom doc that I just mentioned to you about clients for the last five years, the churn rate of each one, you know, upsells, downsells, things like that. I need to, I can't just create this document out of thin air. I need to be communicating with somebody at the company. Also, the buyers are always going to want to speak with the CEO and senior leadership of the company because part of what they're buying is these people, you know, their performance ability and, you know, their ability to keep you know, keep the company going well, especially during the transition period. So after the acquisition happens, there's kind of, you know, a one to multi-year transition period. It's it's almost always at least a year, uh, but, you know, can be two years or, or a bit more when, you know, the, the founders, the selling founders stay and, you know, are transitioning in order so that the, the buying company can put a new CEO in there, new leadership in, in that company to take over. What would be the more or less the estimated dedication of the executive team of a startup involved in an M&A process? As in, you know, is this something you need to be like fully focused on, therefore full time every week? Does it take a couple hours a day? It's like a couple of days a month? I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a ton I have of work. No idea. It, it also depends, again, if they're going for the optimized process, like the, you know, they want to maximize the value of their company. Yeah. In, in that case, you know, they have to, they want to get as many of the most qualified buyers to the table as possible because you don't know which one's going to give the highest level. So that obviously is much more time consuming. Or if they're just kind of, hey, you know, we've had it, you know, we're throwing in the towel, you know, somebody approached us, it's a pretty good offer, you know, and we don't, we're, we're not going for an optimal process. It's kind of, you know, we've got this at the table now and, you know, maybe we could get much more from somebody else. So if you're just meeting, if you're just only communicating and working with one buyer who's, you know, again, probably, you know, and I certainly don't recommend this, but who's probably not, you know, the highest bidder. And that's obviously going to be much less time than if you're working, than if you're trying to have a fully optimized process, having, you know, and getting the highest bid possible for your company, which is going to require, just because you're communicating with so many different people, it requires a lot more time. So it really depends, you know, on the type of process. I'm a huge believer of, of, you know, you don't get reached by selling companies, you get reached by buying them. Um, and in your article, there was something similar. It says companies are bought, not sold, right? Yeah. So in like by this token, what is what are like certain actions we can do when we are in the process of having the talks with potential buyers to increase not only the likelihood of selling the company, but the price of it? Right. What can you do in that moment? It's like, now I know that if I do these two, three things, I'm going to increase yep. the value of the company. 
Yeah. So, you know, one, one thing that you can do is you can do um, hybrid processes so you can kind of go out and, and, you know, for example, you know, in the fintech world, Visa and MasterCard both do a lot of investments, but they also both do a lot of acquisitions. So you can go to them. And if there's a strategic fit between your companies, you know, if you think, you know, you can set up a strategic alliance with one of these companies that's going to be beneficial for both. You can always reach out to them and say, hey, look, you know, we we think our companies could have this, you know, could collaborate on these two initiatives. We think it would be great. Also, by the way, we noticed, you know, that you guys sometimes make investments. You know, we we have tons of investors we can speak with, but if you could be interested, we're happy to have a conversation and many times an offer will just come from that. So, so they can, they may say they analyze the businesses, they look at the fit and they may say, you know, all right, we can offer you a 10 million investment, or they may just say, look, you know, we know that this isn't what you wanted, but we actually see a ton of value here. And so we're willing to, you know, we could be willing to, to buy your company for, you know, a, a strong valuation or, you know, say basically convey interest that they're interested in potentially buying your company. Usually they won't say the value on the first conversation or the first talk, although you can always ask, but that's kind of, that's one way that you can do it. Um, another thing is just, you know, similar, similarly reaching out to potentially, you know, their, their potential buyers, but not saying, Hey, we want to sell our company saying, Hey, you know, we see a lot of strategic fit between our companies, you know, let us know if maybe we can cross sell our product. We have this wealth management software product and you have a, um, a software product about um, how people can optimize their savings. So we can combine my wealth management software with your savings software and, and probably make some, you know, and do something great. So you're not saying I want to be sold, but you're kind of sharing, you know, a ton of really high, strong arguments about how your two companies together could make a lot of sense. And it doesn't have to be an acquisition. You know, it could be just a cross-selling situation or a strategic alliance or, but but the common thing is, you know, starting these relationships. And at some point, if this other company is a company that believes in making acquisitions as a part of their strategy, then if they see the, the value there, then there's a good chance that they will make an offer on your company. But you didn't tell them, you didn't say right out of the gates, hey, we're looking to be sold, you know, and, and, and yeah. go from that approach. So that's kind of the idea, kind of approaching in an indirect way to put it in, you know, I said a lot of words, I probably spoke too much, but I would, you know, to put it more succinctly, I would say, you know, reaching out to potentially strategic fits in an indirect way, saying, starting the conversation, by the way, our companies, you know, have a lot in common, you know, maybe we can do some type of arrangement together, whatever, you know, it's kind of vague what I'm saying, but in, in reality, you don't have to be vague. You, you know, you would be no. much Specific. Like a new partnership or a new contract might increase the, the, the price of the company, right? It, so Yeah, exactly. Or maybe they want to initiate talks as well, right? So. so then you start with that. You're not saying, I want to sell my company. But then if they're a company that makes acquisitions, you know, there's a decent chance they'll make an offer for your company. So it's, that's kind of the way where you can be proactive, but not saying, I'm looking to be yeah. you know, bought or I'm looking to sell my company. So then, you know, they still have to take the initiative and say, I'd like to buy your company, which, you know, puts the, gives you a little bit of extra leverage, I would say. Right. We're running out of time. And the more yep. we speak, the more I realize I know jack shit about this M&A <laughs> world. And I've got so many questions. So we'll definitely have to record a second part to this. But uh, yep. there's one, one question I really want 
to get your opinion on because it's something I I struggle with every time when I'm doing sales, right? I'm doing business development for a company as the CEO and I'm trying how to find the price, how to find how much are they willing to pay for your company? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, so how to, how to find out. So this is where, you know, first of all, I think- Nobody knows, right? It's so a, like, well, it's a tough question. So, I mean, the, what we usually do and what most clients want us to do, and, and they can do it on their own or hire, you know, an accountancy or some other company to do this, but basically try to do a company valuation. So I would do that first, just so you kind of know, and that's never the price that the company gets sold for. Sometimes it gets sold for much higher, sometimes a bit lower, but at least it gives you an idea of what's my approximate value so that you're not going into the situation blind. So that's kind of point one to give you, to kind of take away a lot of that ignorance about the value of your company, which is much, much better, you know, way to, to begin a process like this. Point two is if you want to get the highest offer, the number one strategy is creating the most competition possible. So having many offers at the table and timing them so that they're at the same time and having them know that they're being timed and at the same time. So it's kind of, you know, all right, the date is March 15th. You know, we need LOIs at March 15th, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. And Just a letter of intent, right? Yeah, letter of intent or any type yeah. of written offer that specifies. And you, and you can tell them exactly what you want. So usually when we... Um, communicate the date. We also communicate exactly the information that we want in that written document, which is usually referred to as an LOI. So we want, you know, the price, the terms, is all the money up front, or is it, you know, part of the money up front and then there's an earnout, or you know, there can be tons of different structural aspects. We want to know: is this has this been board approved? Is board approval necessary? You know, if it's necessary, has it been approved? If it's not approved? What do you need to do to get it approved? Is that in process? So there's a lot of different aspects like this that, you know, we put in like a letter that we send out. So they know not only what's the date, the final date that they need to make the offer by, but also what, what should be in this offer, you know, specifically. And it's, it's not too much information. It's, you know, a page or two pages, you know, typically the, the letter or the, uh, the offer that they send us, sometimes they make it longer because they have a standardized document Companies yeah. that do lots of acquisition have a standardized document that may be six or seven pages, but usually that's not necessary. Okay, so anyways. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. I, that's, broke, I, broke, yeah. I forgot what the question was, but hopefully that answered it to some degree. <laughs> the question was the how to find the price. Yeah. So anyways, finding the price, the ideal way is to, you know, create a, what, what, you know, what a lot of finance. Create more demand. An efficient, right. yeah, an efficient market and create more demand and see who the highest bidder is. You know, an auction environment is the best way to find the highest bidder. So, you know, a, a situation when people know they're in competition, that makes your company seem very exciting. They know right. there's many other buyers. Oh my gosh, I'm not the only one who thinks this is a, you know, a really valuable, attractive company. Many other people do too. All right, and, and you, you know, there's ways you can kind of let them know that there's many other people at the table. And so this, this really moves up the offers quite a bit. Um, so that's, I would say that's the number one thing that, that companies can do. And last question, and this is our signature question, and this is the most uncomfortable question ever, because basically one of the things that I think we do the right way in our companies, we're very human and accepting failure and fuck-ups, right? Yeah. And uh, we share them. We're the first people to say like, you know, we're super experts on these technologies, but we also fuck up because everybody fucks up. So here's my question to you is what's your biggest fuck up in an M&A process? A one that you have made. 
because it's very yeah. easy to, to tell somebody <laughs> else's fuck up. Every, a lot of people come here and so like, oh, yeah, I heard once. My colleague's like, no, no, you. Can, can we save this? Fuck? Can we save this for part two? <laughs> I'm gonna think I mean obviously if it's gonna give you like legal trouble I mean just uh, no, don't do it but like if there's something you can share which like it's you know client agnostic you don't need to say the name but like yeah 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 story that we can learn from right we can humanize yeah it. no there's been there's been you know processes that didn't work out um perfectly for sure and so I'm yeah. trying to think of one where you know my particular role was you know something I did was was bad um or, you know, may have caused some, some issues. And, you know, I, I would never claim, you know, obviously I'm not perfect. Nobody is, but it's, I'm thinking hard about, you know, bear with me for one minute. Yeah, no worries. I'm, I'm going to share one that I just realized today. We've been working for this client for two years. We don't have a contract in place. And yeah. that's the second time it happens. So, and it's my fault. Like <laughs> sometimes I just forget to sign the, like to send the contracts. But like yeah. if the other end doesn't really claim them, it's like, Oh my God, we've been working for three years without a contract. Yeah. Fun. Like, you know, it's, it's a fun. Actually, out. now that you mentioned that it's, it, when you open, ask a really open-ended question, sometimes it's hard because it's just the whole world of opportunities. Like I can't think of anything specific, but one time yeah. we did it. One time I did a poor, um, we did a poor contract with a client and, and at the end it was slightly ambiguous what our fee should be. So right. basically it was kind of, you know, obviously we thought the fee was the higher number and they thought the fee was the lower number. So this is, this is one of our early clients. This was, you know, say seven, seven, eight years ago, but anyways, it was, you know, it was, a, it was an awkward situation and, you know, fortunately it got worked out in a friendly way no, nothing bad, but it was, you know, it was, it's contracts are super important. So that was. How much money was the difference? For less? <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, normally I ask the questions like, hey, how, yeah. what's, what's your fuck up? And how much money did it cost you? So that's the second part of the question. But like, uh, uh, it was, was it, it was, like very it was, big difference? Or? It was hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's a pretty big number. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't work in your favor. It's not like one, my first fuck no, up we, in the we company. Actually, we got, we, we, we reached a middle ground. So it wasn't, so and, and to be fair, you know, the contract wasn't perfect in that situation. So I'll, I'll, I'll take some ownership for that, you know? And, yeah. and so it's not, it's not like I was perfect. You know, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a screw up, you know, and, but it was okay. We didn't, you know, we didn't get screwed. The client didn't get screwed. We kind of, you know, reached a friendly middle ground and we still got a nice payday. It's not that we got zero money. We got, you know, we still got paid, just not the, you know, the super highest level that we were hoping for. So Thank you for sharing because I think yeah. like more, more people should be doing this and then fuck ups wouldn't be such a big deal, right? Most of yeah. the times like people, uh, we can talk about it. There's just going to be middle ground. We can solve it. We're, we're all imperfect, right? So um, I think that humanizes you. It makes you, yeah, makes you a more trustworthy person just because you can share it. You're not like overly selling like we're the best in this. Like nobody's perfect, right? In the same business, I like honesty. I value uh, people yeah. being upfront and transparent. So I think that, you know, that's why I, I hold you in high esteem. And that's why I think that, well, that's why you're here. So yeah. anyways, one minute for you, what's going on in your life? What can we help you with? Oh, what should our audience know about your company? Yeah. So, I mean, we're, what's going on in my life? We're, we're an M&A boutique um, and we, we help companies that want to sell, want to make acquisitions. We help with some capital raises as well. Although I would say we've been more M&A focused uh, recently. So if you're, you know, for whatever reason, if you want, you know, look, if your company's going great, but you kind of feel that now could be a good time to exit for whatever reason, 
you know, happy to have a conversation and no, no obligations. I have talks and we have talks with a lot, you know, many entrepreneurs and most of them we don't work with, especially not right away, but I, I enjoy those talks. I try to add as much value as I can, just like, you know, on this podcast right now, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, helping people and, and trying to add value. And I think if you do that, then, then people will eventually come and work with you. So that's, we're happy to have talks with any startup that has any questions about any of these, these issues and uh, you know, feel free to reach out. Uh, maybe I can put my email or something somewhere posted with the podcast. Um, sure. But yeah, I feel free to reach out. That's all I would say. Thank you very much. I can't wait to get together for beers once this is over. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll be, it's a long time in waiting, Alex. Absolutely. Bye. We are Mars-based an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?